All right, I encourage you to grab a Bible and go to Genesis chapter 38. Genesis chapter 38, if you don't have a Bible, the passage is in your bulletin. We're actually going to read the first 10 verses also, so those first 10 verses are not in your bulletin, so uh, if you can download an app real fast, or if you have it on your phone, you might want to bring it up, or just squeeze together and share a Bible. So uh, as you're looking, a couple of things I want to make you aware of inside your bulletin. First of all, these, these are new. These are designed by our very own Elizabeth Smith, who's a member of our church. Yeah, so you can kind of clap for that. It's good stuff. Um, and just like I said, if you're looking for where those car seats are, they're at the open there, bottom right-hand corner. A couple other things on the back here. So it, it was an insert also, Kids Choir and Coco Sunday, which is coming up in a couple weeks. Uh, it's a, a fun, beautiful event as our kids are in here and helping us in worship in the first half. So if you do have a kid that would be interested in being a part of that, man, one of the best ways you can serve us is to register your kid. It just kind of helps us prepare. Uh, so you can go online. Uh, if you don't have access to online, you can just fill out a Connect card, put your kid's name down there. And we'll get them signed up for that. So that's coming up. I think it's December 17th. And then Christmas Eve is on a Sunday, which is kind of cool. And so this is kind of how Sunday, Christmas Eve will work. We'll do our normal two services, a 9 and 11. We'll have uh, limited child care there. So ages 4 and under will have child care. And then we'll come back on, at 6 o'clock that evening and do kind of a family candlelight service. We will not have child care there. So, um, and we will be very sensitive to having kids in here. I won't be preaching very long, all right? So I'll be very condensed and hopefully engaging for the kids. So that's kind of the plans uh, for Christmas Eve. And so it should be good stuff. Uh, last little thing here. So if you're looking for a devotional to do during the season of Advent, there's a couple of them that I just encourage you to go and check out. A uh, little book column. You can go grab one of those and you can pay for that at the Welcome Center. And then one last thing and then I'm done, all right? So Christy Byram, Heidi Thorne, whole bunch of you guys put on the Women's Gift Exchange. I heard it was a beautiful, phenomenal event. I was not unable to go. I don't know what the deal is with that. We're going to have to work on that while men can't come to the Women's Gift Exchange. But um, that was not very funny, obviously. It's like, dude, that fell flat. So Jesse Neighbor uh, spoke. And so just want to say a huge thank you for putting on a great event and loving our ladies really well. Uh, Brittany Collier and a team of people are the ones who decorate this church. Matt Smith is the one that, and Elliot and a couple other people. Uh, he's pointing at people. Yeah, Amanda Wilson. Yes, yeah, she's the one that did the flyers up here. I just want to recognize there's just a lot of people that do a lot of work here, and I'm thankful, thankful for them. And so, so thank you for your creativity and the way you make this place look beautiful. All right? All right. Super. Let's stand together in honor of reading God's Word. And so I've got a couple family members sick with the flu at home. My wife is and my 11-year-old son is. And so I think I'm okay. My chest has like got some weird stuff going on. So my voice may crack every once in a while. So I have met puberty. I'm beyond puberty now. So I'm calling my, my jo Joseph, my 16-year-old, told me yesterday, he said, hey, Dad, you know the average lifespan of a man is like 80 years? And you're over that. So you're over halfway done with your life. So, so thanks for that encouraging word. I'm 48. So... Love you too, Joseph. All right. Last time I said that, a bunch of people put a bunch of essential oils on my desk, and one of those I had to put on my tongue. It's like, I'm not doing that. I'm not putting anything on my tongue, for crying out loud. I might get like an allergic reaction to it and have a big fat tongue like that one guy and hitched. So that's funny. All right. That's all extra. Okay. So there you go. We're going to start in verse 1 and read to verse 19. So at that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam, named Hira. There Judah met a daughter of the Canaanite, a man named Shua, and he married her and lay with her, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. 
That's a horrible name, right? It's like naming your kid Duh. Right? Here's my son Duh. Right? Verse 4. She conceived again. At least you can say it. Like I'm, I can handle her. Right? Amen? She conceived again and gave birth to a son who's uh, named him Onan. And she gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kazib that, they, that she gave birth to him. So Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, lie with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law and to produce an offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he lay with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from producing offspring for his brother. And what he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death also. And Judah then said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, live as a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. And so Tamar went to live in his father's house. And after a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. And when Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hira the Dolomite went with him. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear the sheep, she took off her wedding clothes, or widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to a name, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that, though Shelah had grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. And when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. And not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat for my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. And he said, What pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand. And she answered, or she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. And after she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. This is the word of the Lord, right? <laughs> like, it's for real. It's in there. <laughs> this is not Jerry Springer. This is the Bible. Amen? All right. Let's pray together. Father, I, I'm thankful, Lord, that even... You chose to record some very strange stories, Lord. I, I mean, goodness gracious, if, if this Bible was just written by human beings without your involvement, then we would have not put this story in there. But you're the primary author of the Bible because you're writing one continuous story, and so help us to see that today. And speak to us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So if you were to walk in this morning and, and I would ask you this question like, who, not what, who do you think of when you think about Christmas, what would come to your mind? So like, I would ask you that question, like, who do you think of when you think about Christmas, what are the first people that come to your mind? Here are a few for me, all right? And maybe they are the same ones for you. So thought of Ebenezer Scrooge, Christmas Carol, great, great movie, great play. I thought of Jimmy Stewart. It's a Wonderful Life, one of my favorite movies. I will watch that sometime during the Christmas season. I thought of Ralphie. Amen. That's a great, great movie, a Christmas story. I thought of Chevy Chase, 
Christmas Vacation, you need to watch the edited version on TV. I thought of uh, Will Ferrell, which I've already seen this movie already. Great movie, Elf. Man, that scene where he's freaking out about Santa is just so classic. Man, I've seen it a hundred times. I laugh my head off every time I see him. Some of you may have thought of Santa. Amen, Davin? Yeah, thought of Santa. All right, that's one. And if you know, if you're a Christian, you probably, hopefully somewhere, maybe thought of the nativity scene, right? So you got... Mary, Joseph, Jesus, the shepherds, and eventually the wise men roll in there uh, a little bit later. But I guarantee you this, all right? If I was a betting man, none of you walked us this morning and thought, if the first person I think of when I think of Christmas is Tamar, right? No one is thinking of Tamar during the Christmas season, especially a story like this, right? I mean, this is one strange, scandalous story that sometimes, if you've not read the book of Genesis, you're actually shocked that this is in there. So what in the world is going on here? So just a, just a little background. So Judah, all right, is a, a son of Jacob, and Jacob had 12 boys. So he had two wives. One of them was Leah. He didn't love her, actually despised her. He was tricked into marrying her. She gave birth to 10 boys, and one of those 10 boys was Judah. Rachel was a second wife. That's the one he really loved and one he really favored, really favored. And she had two boys, Benjamin and Joseph. And so that's, that's the makings of some beautiful family dynamics there, right? I'm sure dinner table was wonderful and joyful and no dysfunction in that family. Amen? So, uh, and if you're laughing, you know what I'm talking about. And so the story of Judah is, is he's the brother that came up with the idea of selling Joseph, their other brother, into slavery. They wanted to kill him, but Judah said, hey, let's not waste him. Let's make a little bit of money off of him. And so he's the one in chapter 37 that came up with the idea of selling him into slavery. And now we kind of hear this other account. And so it's interesting because if you read the latter half of Genesis, it's all about Joseph, except for this one little story. It's just kind of weird. So 37 is kind of Joseph being sold into slavery, and then you're kind of wanting to know what happens, but you don't know what happens till chapter 39. And the writer of Genesis inserts this story about Judah in chapter 38. Why? What, what was going on there? Well, if you read the first two verses of chapter 37, you will see that the writer is giving us an account of Jacob. It's not a story of Joseph, the latter part of Genesis. It's an account of Jacob. And part of that story is one of his boys, Judah. So what happens here in the first part of chapter 38 is that Judah goes in, uh, to a foreign land. He has a wife uh, that's a Canaanite wife, not supposed to marry outside of the Jewish clan there, not supposed to marry a Canaanite woman. Marries her. She has three boys. First boy is Ur. Second boy is Onan. Third boy is Shelah. Ur is wicked in God's sight. We don't have a clue what, what Ur did, but we know this about God, that God's slow to anger. He's very patient. And so whatever wickedness was going on with Ur, it was big, and God killed him. And so in this time, the second son, the brother, has a responsibility to produce offspring for the deceased older brother. That's, his, that's their responsibility. They are to do this. And so Onan is the next one in line, and he loves the idea of sleeping with Tamar, but producing an offspring? No because that would dive into his inheritance and he wants more money. And so what he does is he kind of practices a form of birth control in this time. And this isn't a one-time deal, the way that it's written there, this happened numerous times. So on the outside, 
It kind of looks like Onan's fulfilling his responsibilities, that he's fulfilling his duties of trying to raise up an offspring for his brother. But in reality, we know what's going on. And so it looks like on the outside of that, there's something wrong with Tamar because she's had her husband die and she's barren. She can't have children. So something is going on with Tamar. Maybe the gods are against her, so to speak, and punishing her for some kind of evil that she's done. But God sees it and sees it as wicked and he kills Onan. So now you, you got a, a widow who has no children and you got one more son. And Judah's kind of freaking out. Look what happens here in verse 11. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, all right, here's what you're going to do. You're going to live as a widow in your father's house, which is a big no-no in this time. Like Judah's his responsibility now. He's not to send her back. He's supposed, she's supposed to stay with him. So a huge no-no there. So live as a widow in your father's house until my son Shalah grows up, right? You know, when he gets to kind of the age of marriage, then this is what we're going to do. You know, for he thought he might die too, just like his brother. So Tamar went to live in his father's house. And so what Judah sees here is what everybody else probably saw. He saw Tamar as the one that's dangerous. And so the reason why my, my two older sons were killed is because of Tamar, not because of their wickedness. He's oblivious to the wickedness of his boys. And so he sees Tamar as the threat. And so I'm sending you away with, like, Judah has no intentions, no intentions whatsoever of giving his youngest son to her. None whatsoever. So I'm sending you away. And this is a this is a big deal in this time. She's probably 15, 16 years old, and she can't go get a job. Like, she's, she's dependent in a male-dominated society of this time. She's dependent to have a husband and to produce offspring. So here she is, a widow, childless, and she's also betrothed, sort of kind of engaged, even more serious than engagement, to his youngest son. So here she is also un unable to marry anyone. She's basically trapped. And so from verses 1 through 11, 20 years go by. 20 years. And look what happens here in verse 12. After a long time, Judah's wife, approximately about 20 years, the daughter of Shuah died. And when Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnas to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hira the Dolomite went with him. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes and covered herself with a veil to disguise herself and then sat down at the entrance of a name, which is on the road to Timnah. For she thought, though Shelah had grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. And so Tamar is taking actions into her own hands. The way that the verbs are written here, this is quick, this is decisive, this is what we're going to do. And so obviously Judah was, a, was a, a regular here in this cultic prostitution here, or this plan would have never worked. I mean, she's risking her life to go and have sexual relationships with someone else other than the husband that she's betrothed to. So if she's caught, she's killed. There's no defense here. You know what I'm saying? She is killed. Look what happens in verse 15. So when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for he had covered her, she had covered her face. And not realizing that she was the daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat for my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. And he says, Well, what, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand. Now, what is, what's going on here? This is, 
She's not wanting these three items as sort of like a promissory note so that he'll follow through and send her a goat. She can care less about the goat. She's wanting these three items because they're kind of like a picture ID in this time, just like our driver's license. She's wanting evidence to say, okay, this is, this is like, who's, who are these? Well, we know who they are. It's like a, like a way of picture ID here. These belong to Judah. That's why she wants these three items. And then we see there in verse 19, so he gave them to her and slept with her and she became pregnant by him. And she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. So let, let's just state the obvious in this story, right? Let's just kind of state what's obvious here. Yeah, we don't, we don't hear a lot from God other than him killing the two older sons. We don't hear God's perspective on this situation. We don't, we don't hear whether God likes this, doesn't like this, does he find this disfavorable, whatever, specifically in this chapter. But we got other texts to where we can kind of see what's God's perspective on all that's going on in this story. And this is the way you can sum up. It's very wicked, sinful, and scandalous on both sides. So Judah is wickedness and sinful. He marries a Canaanite woman. He's unjust in the way that he treats Tamar. He's, his sexual sin is, is rampant here. His uh, idolatry that goes on here, he's visiting a cultic prostitute, which basically means when he sleeps with her, he's trying to get the gods to show favor upon him so that his life would be prosperous and whatever he does is fertile. And so this is someone that's in the the line of God's family, the family of Abraham. His hypocrisy is just out there in verse 24. We haven't got there yet, but you'll see this in just a minute when he finds out she's pregnant. He basically says, take her and burn her. I mean, it's two words in the Hebrew, take and burn. Execution really, really quick. That's Judah's side. Tamar, yeah, like, like most of us, can have empathy for her, understand her situation. She's kind of backed in a corner. There's really no choice of what she can do here. But at the same time, from God's perspective, it's still sinful. This is incest. She's sleeping with her father-in-law. There's deception going on here because this is scandalous. Yes, you can understand why she did this. But from God's perspective, it's wicked. It's wrong. It's sinful. So when you look at the whole story, right? When you look at the whole of the story, the first thing that maybe comes to your mind is, man, I thought my family was messed up, right? I mean, you go home for Thanksgiving or you go home for Christmas and, and sometimes Christmas and Thanksgiving has, has a way of just kind of bringing this to the forefront. It's like a billboard, you know, like, man, my family is one jacked up family. And then you get into the Bible and it's going, well, they're not that bad, Right? We don't have any incest going on that I know of, right? If you're in Kentucky, you have no idea what you have going on, right? So, and I can make fun of Kentucky because I grew up in Kentucky. But here's the thing, like, like it's, it's so beautiful and yeah, beautiful in, in a weird way because the Bible never, ever shows us the picture-perfect family. It doesn't. If you're wanting an example of what the godly family looks like in the Bible, you're not going to find it. It's nowhere to be found. And at the same time, better yet, when we look at this story, it's not just, hey, welcome to the Bible, the reality of what's going on in the world, but also, look, welcome to the family of Jesus. This story is in the family of Jesus. When I try to read through the Bible, usually yearly, but usually that stretches out to about three to four years, all right? There's only been a handful of times where I've gotten through the whole Bible in a year. When you come to the genealogies 
That's a catch-up day, amen, right? It's like I'm skimming those bad boys. You're flying through them because there's, there's some in Genesis. It's like blah, 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 begat, 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 and he died, begat, 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 and he died. You got some in Chronicles. It's like, all right, moving on. Like the first seven chapters or first Chronicles is all genealogy. And then, then you have these other places like in Matthew chapter 1. So like what, in, like what in the world's going on when there's a genealogy? I think there's a couple things. One is this, is that he's trying to show us that things are rooted in history. So, so Matthew starts his gospel off with the genealogy of Jesus Christ because he wants you and me to know that this is real. This really happened. It doesn't start off like Star Wars. Once upon a time in a land far, far away, blah, 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 blah. Right? It's not how it is. No, he starts off with a genealogy to show you that this is rooted in history. This really happened. The second thing we see with genealogies is there's always like a little nugget. There's always something in the genealogies that you need to see and pay attention to. And the unique thing we see with Matthew's genealogy is he got five women in there. Five. So I'm going to show you these real quick here. It's on the screen here. I'm not going to read all these names because I would butcher them like crazy. But here's verse 1, a record of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then we move down to verse 3, and what do we have? Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah. That's the twins that come out from this this incestual relationship, whose mother was Tamar, first woman. You skip down to verse five. You got the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. We'll talk about her next week, second woman. And by the way, she was also a prostitute. Didn't disguise herself, that was her employment. You go down, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, third woman mentioned in Matthew's genealogy. Go down the second half of verse six. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And whose mother is that? That's Bathsheba. That's the fourth woman that's mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. You skip all the way down to verse 16, and this is the one we all know. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, that's the fifth woman that is mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And look, guys, this is a no-no in this time. This is so rare for someone to mention women and their genealogy, let alone five of them. This is kind of like um, the resume in this time. It's not great, but it's, it's a close parallel, right? So when you're writing a resume, you're not putting on there, oh yeah, I went to University of Louisville and flunked out, you know. I had this job at Starbucks. I stole some money. Would you please hire me, right? You're not putting any of that on your resume. Anytime someone would put a woman in their genealogy in this time was to do two things, to promote the purity of their line or to enhance your dignity. Look, I'm not really smart, but Genesis chapter 38 is not going to enhance your dignity. Amen? Not at all. That's a story you leave out. The closest I can get to this, I, I mean, I, I try to come up with a lot of parallels here, but the closest I can get to this is the naming of kids, all right? So if you're a Christian parent, you probably, probably 70% of you, you have some kid that you named from the Bible. I don't know if there was a book going out several years ago to where if you want to be a good godly parent, you name a kid out of the Bible, right? And so I'm making fun of myself because we did it with two. I guess we didn't love the other two, Amen. <laughs> So, so we did it with Davin. Davin, he's Irish for David. Amen. So I love you, obviously. And then Joseph, my 16-year-old, just teasing, thanks for laughing. My 16-year-old is named after the Bible character in Scripture, Joseph. So, and here's the deal. Like, I'm not trying to make fun of that, but I've just noticed that when we were trying to name our boys, I never thought about naming them Lot. 
He was a piece of work, right? Esau, that wasn't one of the names came up. Samson, I mean, yeah, he kind of ended things well, but you take the whole of his life, he's a train wreck, right? I don't know about you, I don't, you know, we, we had one girl, her name was Kay, we named her after, after Kathy, but if you had a girl in here, I, I'm, I'm sure none of you thought, you know what, honey, I've been reading my Bible, and I came up with this story where this girl dresses like a prostitute and has sex with her father-in-law. Her name's Tamar. Let's name our kid Tamar, right? <laughs> now we've got like Hannah, Mary, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah. And other than Mary, none of those names are in the genealogy of Jesus. Interesting, isn't it? The other thing that's interesting is that with Tamar and Bathsheba, Matthew intentionally adds detail that he doesn't add elsewhere. Did you notice that? Look what he did there in verse 3 of chapter 1. Due to the father of Perez and Zerah, he didn't have to put Zerah in there. The line comes through Perez. He's the oldest. The mother was Tamar. David, verse 6, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Why doesn't he just put Bathsheba? Like, what is, it he, what is he doing there by adding detail? Well, I'll tell you what he's doing. He's wanting you to recall the whole story. The reason why he doesn't say David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, is because he wants you to recall the entire story, not just the mom. The reason why Zerah is there is he's wanting you to recall the entire story of Genesis 38, that scandalous, wicked, sinful affair that took place in that chapter. Why? Why is Matthew wanting you to recall not just the name, but the whole of the story? Because Matthew wants to weave the message of the good news in his genealogy before he begins to write his entire book of the message of the good news. You follow me? He wants to weave the message of the good news of Jesus Christ even in his genealogy. As one writer puts it, and I love this, this is what he says, one gets the impression that Matthew poured, and I know poured is spelled P-O-U-R-E-D, but sometimes in different translations it can be this. So if you get weird about spelling, there you go. One gets the impression that Matthew poured over his Old Testament, that's what OT stands for, until he could locate the most questionable liaisons or connections possible in order to insert them into his record. And so finally, to preach the gospel even in his genealogy. Sometimes I think we have this perspective about the writing of scripture. We think people like Matthew fell in some kind of weird trance and they're just like, like in some kind of weird trance, and they're just writing, and they don't have a clue what they're writing. No, that's not what happened. Matthew is a gifted writer who thought through how he wants to tell his gospel. Yes, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, but they didn't put him in some kind of trance. And so what Matthew is doing, he's looking for spaces and places in the Old Testament where even in his genealogy, he could speak the gospel. We could see hints of the good news woven through how he unpacks the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Think about this, guys. When, at what point in the story of Tamar did she get her life back? At what point did Tamar's life get saved? It's in verse 26. So look, look, just a little summary before we get there. So 
sleeps with her. He goes away three months. He finds out about her pregnancy. He can't hide the pregnancy anymore. Belly starts sticking out, right? So word gets back to Judah. Hey, you know what? Your daughter-in-law is pregnant. Whoa, red flag. He says, take her and burn her. She needs to be executed. And so she's being drugged to her execution, and she sends those three items and says, whose are are these? And Judah recognizes them. And look what he says here in verse 26. Judah Judah saw them. He saw himself. He recognized them. That's what's meaning there with, with the word recognized. And said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shalah. At this moment, Tamar gets her life back. In essence, what Judah is saying is that in spite of all your sin, the incest, the deception, in spite of all your sin, you are righteous. And in that moment, Judah is pointing to a greater Judah. Judah doesn't know this. He doesn't know he's doing that. The writer of Genesis doesn't know that, but God knows it because he's writing one continuous story. And so Judah is pointing to the greater Judah and that greater Judah is Jesus Christ. And just at the moment when Tamar gets her life back is when we also get our lives back because Jesus looks at us and says, truly, in spite of all your sin, put some in there. Man, Look, some of you in this room, with this large of a room, some of you guys could, could be individuals who's, who's had an abortion. It's one of the most guilt-ridden, shameful things that can happen to a woman. And you live with that, with like this big elephant on your chest. Some of you have had sex outside of marriage. You've gotten pregnant out of wedlock. Some of you guys are addicted to pornography. I mean, just put in whatever sin it is. Listen to me. God's not shocked. Read your Bible. He's not blown away. He's not like oh that's gross no like he's seen all of humanity in spite of all your sin this is what Jesus says to you you're righteous you're righteous you're righteous how 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 can that how can that be how how is that true I'll tell you how it's true it's because he does the very opposite of what Judah did you follow me Jesus does the very opposite of what Judah did Judah wants Tamar to pay for his own sin. That's why he's so harsh on judgment toward her. He feels guilt because of what he has done and how he's treated her unjustly. And the reason why he's so swift with judgment is because he wants Tamar to pay for his own sin. When Jesus comes and does the very opposite of that, he takes punishment for our sins. He takes on our rebellion, our sins, and pays it in full. And then he looks at us and says, you're righteous. You're righteous. And that kind of acceptance, when it gets in you, it changes everything. It changed Tamar. I mean, Tamar, look guys, She was the girl nobody wanted. No one wanted Tamar. She was abused. She was betrayed. She's discarded. She's damaged goods. Nobody wanted Tamar. But look, Jesus says, I want you in my family. I want you in my family. So look, in Christ, Tamar is no longer 
the girl that nobody wanted. She's no longer one that's remembered for being widowed twice and sleeping with her father-in-law. Actually, now she is remembered as the first name in the genealogy of Jesus. That's beautiful. And what is that called? That's called redemption. That's being restored to a new person. That's, that's where all the nastiness, brokenness, and sinfulness, where God gets a hold of that and he makes something beautiful. She is no longer the woman that nobody wanted. She's wanted by Jesus, and she's the first name in the genealogy of Jesus. I love what the psalmist says. It's probably one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 103, when he says this. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and all my innermost beings. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all of his benefits, who forgives all your sins, and he heals all your diseases. And I love this last line. Who redeems your life from the pit. That's Tamar. That's us. And not only does he redeem your life from the pit, look what he says there. It doesn't stop there. I mean, that's good, right? Like, hallelujah, praise God. We could have just stopped it there. But no, he always does more than we can imagine. He crowns you. He crowns you with love and compassion. He writes you in his story. Tamar is now the first woman in the genealogy of Jesus. It's interesting. I, I, there's, a, there's a couple Christmas stories that, that are out all throughout this year, or out through this month, sorry. They've been around for a long time, haven't they? So like the, the first one, I, I got a couple pictures up here, how the, how the Grinch Stole Christmas. That was written back in 1957. I did not realize. I knew it was back sometime in the 60s, I thought, but it was in 1957 when this first came out. Uh, a Christmas Carol, which is a beautiful story, uh, written by Charles Dickens. That was written back in 1843. So think about it. Like, like what, what makes a story like that survive so long? And all of us can sit down and watch it again and be engaged with it. Like, what is it about those two stories, as well as many others that have survived so long? What is it? Well, they're stories of redemption, aren't they? The Grinch gets a new heart, and Scrooge gets a new life. You see, the reason why those stories have survived so long is because they speak to longings that we have as human beings. We want our lives to be redeemed. We're intimately acquainted, not only with what's wrong with the world, but if we have any hint of self-awareness, we're intimately acquainted with what's wrong with us. Our brokenness, our sinfulness, our mess. And all of us in this room long for a redeemer, for someone to step in our lives and make sense of it, for someone to step in our lives and take our sin and our messiness and bring something beautiful out of it. That's what we want. That's why these stories have lasted so long and they speak to your own heart. But the problem with that is, is that if you're a Christian here, like you know, like, okay, yeah, Christ, this is part of what we celebrate during Christmas. 
Christ is our redeemer. We, we celebrate his coming to bring about this redemption in my own life. But the problem with that is that we want this now, right? Like we want Jesus to come and make sense of my mess right now. Like we want like some kind of understanding of my suffering right now. We want like my sin that I'm still struggling with. We want it dealt with. We want victory right now. And so when we, when we hear this idea that Jesus has come to redeem your life, some of us in this room kind of meet that with a lot of cynicism and we're a little jaded because we haven't seen the evidence of that reality in our own life. I said this last Christmas, and I'll say this out throughout this entire month. I would argue that in this life, the Christian life is more about waiting than it is about fulfillment. The Christian life is more about waiting than it is fulfillment. And that's what makes it really hard, right? I mean, Tamar, look, look, Tamar didn't know any of this. There wasn't like there's like this inside message that Tamar had. Hey, guess what? Your life, man, people are going to be talking about you in 2017. They're going to build a sermon series around you. Like this is, like you're the first woman named in the genealogy of Jesus. Take courage. Take heart. You're going to make it. No, Tamar had no idea. She probably died with the same questions and doubts and wonderings that all of us in this room have right now. But by God's grace, he's preserved this so that you and I can see, right? So that we can see that a messy situation like Tamar is now a beautiful presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ so that you and I can persevere and make it during seasons of waiting. During seasons where like, I don't get this. I don't understand this. Make sense of this. Help me, God. Give me faith. And God does that through giving us this precious story and say, look, you can make it. I'm going to make something beautiful of this mess. How do I know that? Because you did it for Tamar. Therefore, if I'm in Christ, he will do it for you. I think Christmas time is the one time of the year where this kind of reality comes and hits us in the face, right? Because like, we hear you know, we hear these songs, and dude, I, I'm the first to be all in it, all right? So just, I'm just confessing. So, you know, it's most wonderful time of the year, right? Like that, I love that song. But then you look at your life, and it's like, I don't know. It's not coming together. And honestly, I think some of you, when you come to church, you feel the same way. Or when you've been given a half gospel, I would argue, of Christianity, you feel the same way. Oh, he's, he's come to redeem you. Everything's going to be great. Put your hope in Jesus. Your mess will be awesome, right? And then you do that, and it's like, whoa, I've been at this for a while, and I'm still messy. And I don't, I can't even make sense to what's going on here. Look, if there's one thing that we can learn from Christmas is this, is that, yes, God can be slow in his promises, but his promises will be fulfilled. And God makes something beautiful out of your mess. You better believe he can. He did it for Tamar. He did it for Judah too. He was a changed man after this. So if you're a Christian here, look, 
My encouragement for you is to kind of step into this Advent season, which is a season of longing, right? A season of waiting, and recognize that it's not just the month. It may be your whole Christian life in this world. Like, I know that's not a message that grows churches. I get that. But that's Christianity. It's more about waiting in this life than it is fulfillment. If you're not a Christian here, man, I I pray that the message of Tamar grabs your heart and helps you see no matter what you've done, Jesus wants you to be a part of his family. Give your life to him. There's no greater person to submit and give your life to than Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.